Good morning, everybody. I am uh, super glad you all decided to be here with us this morning. I hope you're encouraged by our service today and edified by it. And I hope that you had a fantastic Thanksgiving weekend and um, were provided ample opportunities to reflect on all of the good things that God has given to us, like family and health and food and stretchy pants and all of those things that uh, we're reminded of the value of this week. So uh, I have to admit something to you this morning. My voice is not as it should be because someone last night talked me into showing off my opera singing skills, and um, <clears throat> now I'm paying the consequence for that. So I'm going to do my best to get through the lesson, um, but the sound booth has promised me that if my voice goes out, I'm going to continue to move my lips and they will talk for me. So we'll see how that works out. So we are in Exodus chapter 34 this morning, and we are finishing what has been a four-part series, and I want to strongly encourage you. I promise that you'll get something out of this this morning, whether you've been a part of the whole series or not, but I would love it if you would take time to follow through with the whole series, and so you can do that a number of ways. You can find it on our Facebook page, you can find it on our YouTube channel, or you can even find it on our podcast, and I didn't even know until recently we had a podcast, but if you go to a podcast and just search for Mission Viejo Church of Christ, you can find it there as well, but I encourage you to follow along through the whole series. We've been going through three very important chapters in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapters 32 through 34, talking about the events that transpire in those chapters and how they teach us about the heart of our God. And so last week we got most of the way through chapter 33 and we ended up with talking about the, the fact that Moses acts uh, as an in-between between the sinful people of Israel and almighty righteous God. And he is an intercessor on their behalf. And on the heels of their great rebellion, when they break covenant with God and create a golden calf, Moses is pleading on their behalf for God, based on what Moses knows about God to be true, for him to extend them grace and mercy. And of course, God does that, but the, the, the events are not over yet. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And we talked about this verse, verse 17, The Lord said to Moses, based on Moses' intercession and pleading, he says, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And we talked about the intimacy that Moses enjoyed with God. So Moses makes intercession on behalf of Israel. God listens to that intercession. But Moses isn't done yet. Moses is going to keep pushing. There's something that Moses is not yet satisfied by, and he sees an opportunity here to be bold enough to ask something even more from God. And this is what he asks in the following verse. In Exodus 33 and verse 18, he says, Moses asked, please show me your glory. It's a very simple request, but it's a profound request. And I want to try to get at the heart of what it is exactly that Moses is asking from God when he asks, please show me your glory. So let me take you back a few chapters into Exodus and just show you a couple things that happened in Exodus chapter 24. What Moses might be doing here is going back to something he had already experienced and asking for a repeat of that experience. If you go back to Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, it reads this, Then Moses, or then he said to Moses, this is God speaking to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. 
Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So as God is getting ready to kind of solidify the covenant agreement that he's made with Israel, and specifically God's part of the covenant, the promises that he's made, he's inviting certain people to come up onto the mountain. Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Everybody else is to stay at the foot of the mountain that he commanded, but he's inviting certain people to get closer to his presence. Then you skip ahead a little later in that same chapter, and it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. It's very interesting because he talked last week about how God's presence was going with them, right? And how was that manifest? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? So they were used to seeing the presence of God, but something different is transpiring here where they're seeing something else about God. And only certain of them are privy to this this sight of God. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And then listen to this. It means God didn't destroy them for being in his presence, but this is what they did. They beheld God, they got to see him, and what else? And they ate and drank. They literally go up onto the mountain to kind of share a meal with God himself. It's an amazing story, and one that I wish Moses would have given us a lot more insight into, but he doesn't. But I just want you to see that Moses was part of a group of men that were invited to draw nearer to the presence of God. And so it could be that Moses is simply saying, God, please repeat that so we know that you're serious about your covenant faithfulness here. And then that chapter ends with this. It says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, they've seen the glory of the Lord, was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So remember, Moses goes up. Aaron goes up, Nadab and Abihu go up, 70 of the elders of Israel go up, but it's only Moses that does the following. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It's like Moses got to enter into the very presence of God. His glory is on the mountain, in the cloud, in this consuming fire. Everybody else has to retreat back down the mountain, but Moses alone gets to go enter into that glory of God. So it could be, I'm just showing you, that maybe what Moses is getting at here is, hey God, remember when you let me be a part of your presence and see your glory? Could we do a repeat of that? But I think something even more is in Moses' words here. I don't think he's just asking for a repeat of what he already experienced. I think he's pressing God for God to show Moses even more of his glory. Let me even further in to your presence. Because what Moses really wants more than anything in this chapter is to come to a more uh, fuller understanding of who God is. And so, God, show me even more of your glory, this part of God that not everyone gets to see. And so we get to verses 19 and 20, back in chapter 33 now. And it says this, he said, And I will make all my goodness. So this is God's answer to Moses' request. Let me see your glory. And this is what God says. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Okay, what is going on here? 
Well, a couple things. Number one is what I was just hinting at a minute ago. This is why I think Moses is asking for more than he has previously experienced. And I think God is picking up on that. And so in response, he's saying, yes, Moses, I will show you my glory. I will pass before you, but there's part of my glory. There is part of who I am. There is part of my presence that I have to shield you from. You can't come face to face with all of me because man will die if that happens. And so what is this all about? He says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Well, I thought last week we talked about the fact that, remember this in chapter 33? Moses would go into the tent and there he would do what? Talk to God face to face, right? You guys remember that? So how is it that Moses already talked with God face to face and here it's saying you can't see my face because if you see my face, you're going to die. What in the world is going on here? Is this a, an apparent contradiction? Right? Did people over a thousand years forget to fix up this, this unfinished part of the Bible that makes no sense or what is happening here? Well, this term face-to-face is an idiomatic expression. And let me explain in case you don't know what that word means. So idiomatic does not mean that you're automatically an idiot if you use the expression. Okay, that's not what the word means. An idiom is a phrase that native speakers of a language intuitively understand but might not make sense outside of that context, right? And we have all kinds of idioms that we use in English where if you are learning English as a second language and you hear these idioms, you're thinking, what are these crazy people on about, right? This is an idiomatic expression. The Israelites used this expression just to describe the reality of a relationship that was intimate in nature. If you knew someone face to face, it just meant that you enjoyed a certain level of intimacy in your relationship with that people. But what this phrase is not doing is making some grand statement about the physiology of God. In other words, it's not saying God had a human face. And Moses had a human face, and when the two of them talked together, their faces got really close. That's not what this is about. It's just expressing the closeness that Moses had with God. And so that's what face-to-face is all about. And so when God says, you cannot see my face and live, he's not saying, Moses, you can't lay eyes on this physical part of my physical body, which is my face, as if God has a human face. That's not what he's talking about. He's simply expressing the reality to Moses that I understand, Moses, you want to understand me more fully. I understand that you want to draw closer to me, that you want to see my glory in a way you haven't seen it before, and I will grant part of your request. But you cannot see all of me and live. There is a part of me that is so big and so grand and so powerful that you cannot come face to face with it, or it will be to your detriment. And we learn something in this about the nature of our God, right? That we only know God in so much as he's willing to reveal himself to us. And he's revealing himself to Israel through Moses here, but there's part of him that he has to hold back because we're not ready for it yet. God is just that much bigger than we are, and we can't handle all of him. And so he tells Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will call my holy name before you but I have to withhold part of me. And so we get to verses 21 and 23. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And again, all of this is just this anthropomorphic way of us helping to to come to terms with what is transpiring here. God's going to put Moses in a big crack in a rock. And he's going to cover him with his hand. 
And as he passes by, Moses gets to see God walk away from him. But he doesn't get to see his face. And maybe you've got this picture of God as this giant human-like form, right? And his big hand is covering Moses in the rock. But it's just helping us try to understand that God is going to let Moses see part of his glory, but not all of it. You understand? And so what part of God is God going to allow Moses to see? That's the question here. What part of God is he going to reveal to Moses? And what is Moses going to learn about his God through this interaction? Last week, you'll recall that I drew some parallels between Moses and Jesus and how Moses points us towards the need for a better intercessor and how Jesus fulfilled that role. Okay, we're going to do that again, draw some parallels between Moses and Jesus this morning. Now let's start here. John chapter 1 and verse 14. We talked about this verse last week, right? We talked about Jesus taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us, where he literally established a tent among us, calling us back to this very story in the Exodus narrative. Well, let me show you some parallels here again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his, what's the word? Glory. The very thing Moses was asking to see from God. Show me your glory. You think John just accidentally uses this language? No, he's drawing us back to this encounter Moses had with God. Just like Moses wanted to see that part of God that he hadn't yet revealed. This is what Jesus does. He comes and reveals that intimate inward part of our creator to us. So that when we see Jesus, we see his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father And then he says this, full of grace and truth. And the vocabulary used there is the same vocabulary that the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that those early disciples were familiar with. It's the same vocabulary that it uses when it translates the language God uses in chapter 34 to describe himself. In other words, everything John is doing here is pointing us back to Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And he's saying that Jesus does something for us that even Moses didn't get to experience when he experienced God in this intimate manner. And then he skipped down to verses 17 and 18. And he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, there's that terminology again, come through Jesus Christ. These parts of God that God is about to reveal to Moses, Jesus more fully and more perfectly reveals to us. Then he says this, and this is where punctuation becomes important. No one has ever seen God, and then there's a semicolon there, right? There's a break in thought. This is the way I'm reading from the ESV here. This is the way these translators are trying to get us to understand what John is communicating to us. No one has ever seen God. Okay, well, Moses got to see God, right? Well, what part of him? His backside as he walked away, right? So he saw part of God. Abraham got to converse with God in human form. Try to wrap your head around that one. So people have seen parts of God, but what is John saying? No one has ever seen all of God. Because as God already pointed out, if you see his face, what happens? You can't live, right? There's parts of God that you cannot come face to face face with. John is reminding us of that reality. No one has ever seen God. But then he says this, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who is that? Jesus. You catch what John does here? The only God is not in reference back to God the Father. It's in reference to God the Son. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has done what? Made him known. 
Jesus has manifest God to us in a way that God himself didn't even manifest himself to Moses when Moses asked for that kind of manifestation. In other words, Jesus has more fully revealed the heart and nature of our God to us than God was able to do through Moses even at that time. I want you to think about that. In all of Israel at the time, it was only Moses who got to experience that part of God. And John is telling us that through Jesus, we all get to experience that part of God in a fuller way than even Moses got to experience. It's an amazing thing to come to terms with and wrap your head around that this is what Jesus has done. He has revealed that inward part of God to us in a way that no one has ever experienced before. Jesus does that for us. And all of this ties back into these chapters in Exodus that we're talking about now. Listen to some things that other New Testament writers have to say about this reality. Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God. You can't see that invisible part of God, but you can see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, who are you really looking at? God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then listen to this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It wasn't like 75% of God. It wasn't 85% of God. It wasn't all but that face-to-face part that we can't see. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus and we come face-to-face with Jesus, we are experiencing God in the fullest. There's no part of himself that he's withholding through his son. I want you to think about that. Here's another passage, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And I encourage you to read the first four verses of Hebrews. It's amazing. But this is what he says in verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of, here's that word again, the glory of God. That part of God that Moses wanted to see so badly. Jesus is the radiance of that part of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All that is who Jesus is and what he does for us. He helps us experience God in a way that Moses wanted to. He helps us come face to face with our creator. Okay, back to chapter 34 now. We've walked through chapter 33. Follow along with me in chapter 34 if you would. Let me just read the first seven verses. Tyler read verses 6 and 7. Let's read all seven of them together. So Exodus chapter 34. And I want you to see what the conclusion of this whole narrative is. What what ends up happening as a final result of all of this. So the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Why did he break them? Remember? Because he was mad. He was really mad. When he came down the mountain and saw what they were doing, he smashed the tablets on the ground. God's reminding him of that. We're going to redo this whole thing. We are going to renew the covenant. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. This is all like the instruction was given the first time around. Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for 
thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is how God appears before Moses, and in granting Moses' request to understand him more fully, this is how God does it. You want to know who I am, Moses? This is who I am. And this is God's summary, in a way, of everything that Israel had just watched God do. What did Israel deserve because of their rebellion? What did they deserve? They deserved punishment. They deserved death. They deserve to be cut off from the promises of God, and yet instead, what do they receive? They receive a renewal of the covenant. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, you guys remember what that one says? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do we deserve because of our rebellion? We deserve to be cut off from God. What do we instead get extended as a gift? The gift of grace that results in what? A renewal of the covenant and an eternal home with him. Jesus came to illustrate this to us more perfectly, but God is trying to show Moses this reality here. Israel deserved the punishment God wanted to give them. Moses intercedes and instead what do they get? A renewal of the covenant. This is who God is. This is who God is. And so, we got to come to terms with a couple things that challenge us here, because the, verse, the, the, the description of God doesn't end there, okay? It says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God is full of grace and mercy, and yet some people are still going to pay the penalty for sin. And this gives us a pause, and we say, well, how do we make sense out of this? It would be great if you just gave us the first part, God, but what about that second part? And what do we do with that? And how do we come to terms with that? And this is why I think it's such a challenge. There's a passage that a lot of us know and love very much because it also helps to frame our understanding of who God is. It's in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. And it's talking about the fact that God doesn't hold subsequent generations responsible for the sin of their forefathers. He just comes out and says... The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor shall the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Maybe you've heard that, that, that come up in conversations about things like infant baptism before, where we talk about original sin and whether children inherit sin and they're guilty for sin. We talk about that a lot. But then we get to this passage in Exodus chapter 34, and God is saying, listen, I'm a God full of grace and mercy, but I'm not going to clear the iniquity, and they're going to suffer punishment to the third and the fourth generation. So how do we come to terms with this, and how do we make sense out of it? Well, first I would just like to point out what this is not. We do not read Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 as if it's a mathematic formula for understanding the nature of grace and mercy. That's not what it is, Okay. What it is instead is a description of God that is meant to draw, and, and draw out and highlight the parallel and discrepancy between two parts of God. Let me see if I can show this to you in a way that makes sense. Okay, on one hand we've got this. Who do we know God is? He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. And he is also abounding in what? Faithfulness. These are the ways that God describes himself. And on the other hand, we've got a God who will visit iniquity on those who are guilty. Right? 
Go back to this first one, okay? This part of God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, steadfast love and faithfulness. God says all of those attributes will be doled out to the thousandth generation. The thousandth generation. Now you go back. This idea of visiting iniquity on those who are guilty. How many generations will that be doled out to? To the third and fourth. God's wrath extends to three and four generations. God's grace and mercy extend for how many? Thousands of generations. Do you see what God is trying to get us to understand about him here? Yes, sin will be punished. And yes, there is a a, a part of justice that must be served. But if you want to understand my heart and who I am, you need to understand my steadfast love and mercy cannot be exhausted. They go to the thousandth generation. But my wrath will run its course and come to an end. One of these parts of me will last into the thousands of generations. The other part, that flame will be extinguished after three and four. In other words, I think a good way to illustrate this is, is this picture right here, right? We think of this and you think of what? Justice, right? You think of the way that we understand justice. Because in our mind, the scales of justice can't be tipped to one way or the other, right? They have to be perfectly balanced. That's how justice is served. But if you think about this instead of our legal system, think about it as the nature and the character of our God, the scales of God are tipped heavily to one side because grace and mercy are weighing down the scales of God's justice, you got thousands of generations weighing down God's grace and mercy here and only three and four when it comes to his wrath. This is what we're supposed to understand about the nature of our God through the story. Who is God? He is a God abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He is full of grace and mercy and covenant faithfulness. And those things will extend to the thousandth generation. There's still a consequence for sin. But go back to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For those of us who are in Christ, do we live in fear of punishment because of the sin we've committed? No, we live with the understanding that this God, full of grace and mercy, instead of giving us what we deserve, has instead offered us what? A free gift of eternal life with Him. This is the heart of God. This is the God that we serve. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. What is the lasting impact that all of this has on God's people? The understanding that in spite of everything they had just done, God, instead of destroying them or abandoning them, is going to do what? Renew the covenant. And even make it better. Just wait and see what I'm going to do among my people, God says. And this does have an enormous lasting impact on his people. Just as an aside, we don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but look at verse 17. As God is rehashing some of the things he wants them to be mindful of, just a quick reminder, God says to the people, as I renew this covenant to you, by the way, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Just this quick friendly reminder. Let's not do this golden calf thing again, all right? But then this happens in Numbers chapter 14, and I want you to see this, right? What kind of impact does this have on Moses? It's a lasting impact. It's a profound impact in the way that it shapes the way that he approaches his God from this point forward. In Numbers chapter 13, the spies have been sent out into the land of Canaan. You remember the story? 
They come back and all but two of them say what? It's hopeless. Giants live in that land and there is no way we are powerful enough to overcome them. They get all the people worked up and the people begin to cry and they say what? God has only brought us here so that we can be destroyed by our enemies. It would be better if we had stayed in Egypt. In fact, they say, it's better for us now instead of crossing over the Jordan into the promised land. It's better for us to appoint a new leader who's going to take us where? Do you remember? Back into Egypt. They've done it all over again. They've rebelled again. And God says as much, how long am I going to put up with this people who continually rebel against me? But you know what Moses does? He intercedes yet again. And I want you to see something. This is the impact that it had on Moses. As he intercedes yet again for this people, follow along with me, verses 17 and 19. He says this, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. You catch what Moses does? He says, God, forgive them again. And he's confident this time in his request because he says, this is who you told me you are. So I'm reminding you again, please do what you always do and forgive this people yet again. What kind of impact did this story have on Moses? An enormous impact. So much so that this is who he began to think God was. This is how he framed God in his mind. That yes, the people have rebelled again, but I know who you are, God. And I know you are ready to forgive. And so I'm asking you again to just do what you always do and forgive your covenant people. And what does God do? He forgives yet again. Now, was there consequence for that rebellion? Yeah, there was. That whole generation, apart from two of them, never got to make it where? Into the promised land. But did God abandon his covenant promise? No, he didn't. That subsequent generation made it over the Jordan through the leadership of Joshua, and they received those promises God had made because God is always faithful. This is who God is. What kind of impact does it have on us today? A couple passages quickly in the lessons yours. John 3, 16 and 17. You know verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. You remember verse 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Moses was right. This is who God is. He is a God always ready to forgive always ready to extend grace and mercy and steadfast love. This is who God is. This is what we can expect from our God. And of course, it's made manifest to us most perfectly through the sacrifice of Christ. 2 Peter 3 in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. We just talked about this in Glenn's class on Wednesday. What is God waiting for? Maranatha, what does that mean? Anybody? Lord, come quickly. You guys ever pray that? I'm asking honestly. You ever, you ever fervently pray for Christ's return? Do you look forward to it? Or do you hope he gives you just a little more time to, you know, do some stuff? 
to eagerly await Christ's return is an acknowledgement that we want that reality because we know who God is. We look forward to his return because we look forward to the judgment, knowing that we stand before the judgment seat of God. It's not condemnation that awaits us. But what? The promise of an eternal home with him. But what is he waiting for? It's been 2,000 years. I thought this was going to happen quickly. And yet the world continues to get more and more corrupt. Why is he waiting so long? Well, he's not slow. He hasn't forgotten about his promise. This is what he's waiting for. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you understand? The way that we think about God is so important because it it, it colors the way that we approach him, the way that we read scripture. What has God waited for? Just so that he's got more people to condemn to hell? No! So he's got more people to call home with him. This is who God is in his heart of hearts. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. What does this mean for us? Right? How do we react to a God who is abundant in steadfast love and mercy? How do we react to a God who is always willing to extend grace to us? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. How do we react to this God knowing who he is? With repentance. But because of your hard heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If your reaction is all of this, is, is just to use it as an excuse to continue in sin. If you look at all of this and you realize God is so abundant in grace and mercy that I've got more time before I really have to respond to him, then you have misunderstood the whole story. Paul's point here is when you read about this God and you come to terms with who he is, there is only one reaction appropriate. And it's to fall on your knees in penitence. It's to plead for grace and mercy, knowing that you'll receive it, but to plead for it. Because you understand that his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness are all there to draw you closer to him. And so this is where I'm ending this series this morning is with a plea to all of you. As you survey scripture and you continually come to terms with who God is, as you think about the three chapters that we've been walking through through for the last few weeks and you come to terms with a God who would continually forgive a people this stubborn and rebellious. And then you look in the mirror and you realize that you are that person. How are you going to react? How are you going to react this morning, right here and right now? How are you going to react to that? Are you going to say, okay, God is gracious. I'm going to go out and I'm going to abuse that grace this week. Or are you going to take advantage of that grace right here, right now? Because the opportunity is extended to you in this moment. In this moment right here, the opportunity is extended to you. The invitation is given to you to become his child. Take a hold of that love and that grace and that mercy and allow it to transform you into something and someone new. And if you want to take advantage of that opportunity, then we give you that chance right here and right now. Let's stand and let's sing this song together. And as we do, encourage you to think about your relationship with a God that loving and that good and that gracious and that merciful and ask yourself, how should I respond? If you have any need from the congregation now, if there's anything we can do to serve you as you answer that question, let us know what it is. You can come forward as we stand and we sing. Let's sing. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Lord, he is good.
Thank you. 